London International Shipping Week really comes during challenging times. We've heard already this week and indeed this morning, macroeconomic uh, and geopolitical volatility is driving increased inflation, increased interest rates, increased challenges on food and energy security, and for society at large, a cost of living crisis. So many of us in this room will, and indeed have argued, that the role of shipping has arguably, arguably never been more strategically important. And that's to keep people fed, warm, and mobile, and help avoid civil unrest. Yet these are times uh, for transition with maritime, uh, to meet our own decarbonisation goals and those set by the new IMO greenhouse gas strategy negotiated uh, at MEPC80. Today at Lloyd's Register, we've released our own Global Maritime Trends Report 2050. Uh, this is launched by Lloyd's Register and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. And it looks at all of those uh, aforementioned um, areas of volatility to create four possible maritime landscapes for, for the transition. Perhaps the best of those transitions is a just and gradual uh, transition where we leave no country behind. It's rather slow, but it is co cooperative and it looks at the widespread adoption of green hydrogen. Another scenario is a rapid technology-driven uh, scenario, and indeed one that Baroness Veer and I discussed yesterday morning in Downing Street, which looks at the rapid adoption of AI and clearly having a massive impact on skills and capability that we'll need within the industry. There's then perhaps the worst outcome for the planet, which is climate-impacted, where there's little uptake, deglobalization, and a fragmentation of trade. Uh, and what's striking across all of these scenarios is that we must get decarbonization right, we must get it safe, and we must get it right now. The report shows that the fourth scenario, a regionalized and fragmented transition, could see ports around the world rendered unusable by rising sea levels. The ports of Shanghai and Houston, some of the world's largest, would be shut down in 2050 with a rise of sea levels of just 40 centimetres. And if that sounds a little bit far-fetched, I think we're all aware of what's going on in Panama, and I'm sure Arsenio may want to comment how a drought there is already disrupting supply chains and leading to the restricted use of the canal. So clearly, we cannot let indecision persist. Shipyards are already filling up, and we need more first movers and fast followers, especially in the production of clean fuels and energy. Reaching net zero emissions by or close to 2050 demands a global cooperation, technology innovation, and aligned international policies. We've got external challenges, of course, such as those geopolitical shifts and global events adding complexity. But nevertheless, this industry is collaborative. We are global. And hopefully, the strategic insights as presented in the Global Maritime Trends 2050 report prove that this industry is well poised to navigate all these challenges. And we've got a good success record with how we did that during the pandemic.
So, delighted uh, that we can hear a little bit more today. Uh, what is it that governments and the IMO can do to assist the industry in our transition? Uh, and what uh, government really wants to see from us next? Uh, so, welcome uh, esteemed pa panellists, Baroness Vera Norberton, Minister for Aviation, Maritime and Security at the Department for Transport in the UK, and Mr. Arsenio Dominguez, Director of Maritime Environment Division and Secretary-General-Elect at the IMO. Congratulations, Arsenio. If I could start with Baroness Veer. As a government today, realistically, how do you balance energy security, the cost of living crisis, with the critical need for investment towards net zero? Good afternoon, everybody. That is the most enormous question, uh, so I will try not to uh, go on for too long. Um, but the reality is, and, and I take your point about energy security, and I take your point about challenges in the cost of living, but there are always going to be larger factors outside the need to decarbonisation, decarbonise, because the, the need to decarbonise uh, is clearly a long-term uh, endeavour. Um, I'm delighted that the IMO uh, reached uh, agreement uh, on the new um, uh, targets. That's absolutely essential because I think that if we do not have international agreement, we will end up with a very fragmented system. Uh, you will end up with regions trying to compete against each other. Um, and I'm afraid those nations and those areas which are more ambitious may end up uh, losing out. And so we've got to make sure that everybody moves um, in lockstep also noting that there will be some uh, organizations uh, within uh, the shipping industry who actually decide to move a bit quicker because the, there's going to be two drivers to decarbonization. The first is going to be what governments individually do um, and then also what the uh, international community does. And that, from, a, from my government's perspective, will focus very much around setting the right policies, setting the right regulatory environment, and where needed, investing in technology where the sector is not quite ready to do so. Um, but I think that the second area that, that doesn't get enough uh, pick up and in certain areas of maritime I think will be quite strong um, is the sort of customer and consumer pressure which is going to come through. When I was at Singapore Shipping Week I heard quite a lot actually about some of the cargo owners are now saying right you know what we've got customers uh, who are expecting certain things from uh, the shipping industry and we will only purchase um, from those people that are providing it. So I do think that the governments have a very, very uh, important role to play. I also do think that the sector does. And I think that what I've learned so far from International Shipping Week is some fantastic conversations are happening and we've got to get more of those conversations happening. I had one this morning on green corridors. There were more views around that table about what a green corridor actually is uh, than, than, I don't know, drinks parties at the International Shipping Week. Um, so, you know, it's having those conversations, thinking about, okay, well, what are we trying to achieve? I don't want to put anything in too narrow a bucket, but we've got to roughly know what we're talking about. Again, I accept that I have a role to play in setting those things out from a government's perspective. Thank you, Baroness. Um, Asenio, we've now got a growing number of orders uh, for ships with, that can or will run on electricity, hydrogen, methanol. Very recently, some ships being uh, ordered that will be capable of running on ammonia. 
and also now investments in ships which we can carry CO2 as a cargo and carry large quantities of green energy as a cargo. So in your opinion, what more needs to happen at the international government level to ensure that when those ships arrive, there's fuel for them in the ports? We've, I think we've seen just in recent weeks how challenging and what sort of prices Maersk has had to pay for that first relatively small methanol fuel container ship. So what more can we be doing? Um, thank you. Good afternoon, Minister. Pleasure being here with you and uh, thank you all for this opportunity. We have given the first, um, or we have taken the first step, which was providing that certainty into the pathway towards decarbonisation and the industry. Um, that was the adoption of the strategy back in July. It is the first step. There's a lot more to come. Now, we have a challenge, and of course, the first one is going to be uh, 2030. But the good thing is that we know the challenge, and we know how to start addressing it. They are the early movers, and that's very welcome, because that goes also in line with what uh, the minister was saying about the green corridors. It's solutions that are out there, but we still don't know exactly how to tap on, on all of them. But the more that they come on board, the more that they actually appear, the more experience that we actually get. We need to remember to also to share those experiences. And when we go into the early movers, of course, we talk about mostly the big companies that can actually take those steps, but we cannot forget the other ones, the rest, that we also need to bring on board. Just like with the countries on the United Nations, we have developed and developing countries, we also have different scenarios within the shipping industry. And it's how we actually assist each other, because this is not going to be just one person, one organization finding the, the, the right solution. Here is where the more that we actually move forward to achieve those targets that we have for 2030, the more that we're actually going to get the necessary fuels, the more that the market would stabilize. And we have seen that before with other IMO regulations. This is bigger than those. I do acknowledge that. But we have the experience of actually having gone through those uh, pathways before. Now, the other point that is relevant is how we engage with other sectors, take the energy sector. This is not a decision or, or a solution, rather, that it's just going to fall on the maritime transport and on, on the IMO. And that's why one of the main objectives for us in the organizations and for me taking forward is actually bringing the energy sector and other relevant sectors to play with us, to understand what we're doing, to understand what we need from them. We started working with IEA a lot more, the International Energy, Energy Agency, and IRENA as well, because of that. The other aspect that I want to bring to the organization is when we have those uh, support capabilities, conferences, and activities with the member states, is to bring the other sectors. And we recently have one in Chile where we invited the energy sector and we realized that in the same countries they were not talking to each other, they were not aware of what is needed and also calling on, on member states to actually provide those incentives that are also going to be um, the catalyst for meeting their own national strategies. Because that, that's something that needs to happen, is how we actually work collaboratively, not just at the international level, but also at the national level. Thank you, Senyo. Um, I want to come back to your point, Baroness Fear, on a green corridor and what it may or may not be. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of us that were at COP26 in Glasgow um, were very pleased with the Clydebank Declaration uh, to have so many signatories, I think more than 25 signatories to that declaration. 
um, was a big step forward. It was supposed to be the opportunity for us to get or avoid the chicken and egg situation. Um, how satisfied are you with the progress we're making? Well, um, moderately satisfied, I have to say. I mean, you know, COP26, I think, was a really big step forward, uh, and the, the 26 nations that signed up to the Clybank Declaration um, are the ones that, um, you know, certainly many of them uh, are already doing a lot of work in this area. So I think we've established that there is a burning platform behind the need to set up a green corridor. In my view, and I accept that this is not you know, universally accepted, I think that a green corridor um, is something of a moonshot. It is not an incremental change. Uh, what I would expect is for the entire sector to change from brown to light green to dark green incrementally. The entire sector will do that. But I do think that, that the reason for focusing on green corridors is to test what is possible. Because if I just compare uh, to my other part of my job, which is aviation, the pathway for aviation is clear. It's still damn difficult. But I know that I'm going to be putting SAF in my planes, hydrogen will come along eventually, and pretty much that's where we think we're going to be. Maritime sector is not like that at all. And that means that from a, a, a government's perspective, we have to be, and we should be technology agnostic, because we need the market, we need technology to decide which fuels are going to come, come uh, to the fore. And of course, it may be different fuels uh, for different, different types of uses, I completely accept that. But what we do need to do is define exactly you know, what it is that we're trying to achieve. Now, in the meeting that I had this morning, um, you know, I was hearing about uh, what is going on in Canada. I think they're making good strides with the US, and that's very, very welcome. Um, I think it's 14 or 15 routes now uh, globally where um, progress is being made. In the UK, we've invested uh, £1.1 million in feasibility studies. And I know they sound really dull, but they're really, really important to understand what is possible. So one of those feasibility studies, for example, is looking at the short straits. Now, if we cannot decarbonise the short straits, then quite frankly, we should all go home because it is, you know, high volume, uh, doesn't go very far. It's, it's entirely predictable, really, apart from, apart from the odd meteorological event. Um, so, so those are the sorts of things that we've got to bring forward. Now, to, in order to make progress, what are we going to do next and how are we actually going to do it? We've got to bring together the clusters um, of the willing. And, and, and as government, we can put the, the grit in the oyster uh, in order to, to encourage people to work together, completely accept what um, Arsenio is saying about the energy sector, because one of the key challenges that we have in the UK and also in, in probably every country in the world is grit. Um, but I have lots of ports who will come up to me and knock on my door saying, Minister, Minister, I need some energy. Well, that's great. So does everybody else. So what we have to do as a sector, and I'm really keen that we do, is we've got to come up with evidence. I need to be able to go to the Department of Energy Security and Net Zero and say, Dover needs this, Southampton needs that, Felixstone needs that. They need to look at me and go, okay, and if we gave it, what would happen? I'd say, well, and this would happen. We would reduce uh, emissions by X, Y, Z. So it's that interface between the industry providing us with the evidence such that we can take it into a centralized planning system, which is the energy network within pretty much every country. We need to decide where we're going to uh, in increase and improve the grid first. So that is what I'm hoping to, to now see 
is those people who want to be first movers, those people who think that actually this is a competitive world and there is a competitive advantage to be had, grouping together, working with me, providing evidence that I can then take to other parts of government to make sure that we are providing the infrastructure um, to put that in place. And then, of course, it's over to um, IMO and others to make sure that we have the regulatory framework around that such that everybody um, is safe when operating the corridor. Thank you. Uh, very clear. Um, and Asenio, perhaps coming out of MEPC 80, as with anything, building momentum, trying to get that first push is the hardest. Um, clearly, we haven't got that much time between now and 2030 and the 5% with an aspiration of 10% of zero emission fuels being used before the end of this decade. Where are you seeing the biggest opportunities for acceleration? We, we reached a very good agreement in the way that, in, in how it was, it was done. And it's all the membership together. It was the member states, the IGOs, the NGOs that were present. And this actually gives us the momentum to move forward. Now let me just speak on something because the, the minister was put on, 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 on all this. It's, it's how, how we demonstrate what is needed. And the green corridors, for example, yes, we're still learning from them. It's one of those tools that is going to provide that kind of information. It will, some, some of the, uh, the, the trading routes may, may change. They may um, veer away from what we are used to business as usual just because of the way the things are being developed. Now, when it comes to the opportunities, is we know the challenges. We know that it's going to be difficult to get all, all those fields and that we're competing with other sectors as well, not just in transport, but uh, different, different sectors around the world that will also need the fields that, to be fair, we will be transporting um, for everybody to, to use. Um, and here is where you know, countries can take those actions as we progress with the development of the regulation and the shipping industry as well. We talked already about the early movers and is sharing that experience and that information. We all know where we're going now towards 2030. So we now can plan accordingly. You, you open by mentioning the increasing numbers um, of the orders. That's a very good step forward. It's calling again on, on, on countries you know, for us to provide that necessary assistance to see which areas are going to need more support in order to not stay behind, to continue uh, moving forward. It's how we're going to engage the safety aspects as well that is going to come with this transition. So we have an array of areas where to work. We have a very challenging deadline. Yes, 2027, we will have the, the, the rules into force. But there's a lot of studies, a lot of research and development that is actually ongoing, that is giving us necessary projections in order to actually make those decisions. And with the agreement to also develop an economic measure of pricing mechanism, this will also be one of those areas that it actually is going to create that momentum or, or, or the additional push to actually get to the 2030 uh, checkpoint. Just a quick follow-up on that. Can you share where, when you think that pricing mechanism is coming? The, the timeline right now is for the adoption of the measures in 2025 in order to get them to enter into force in accordance with the procedures uh, early in 2027. So we started the process right now, which is the steering committee that is going to oversee the impact assessment of the different measures. 
So in this case, with the different proposals that we have on the table for an economic measure, there will be a, a methodology to be applied on different pricing. That information will be provided to the organization in full. The final report is to the autumn session of the committee at the end of next year. The initial report will come to the spring session of next year. And once we have that in place, we will have the necessary tools to develop the, the, the pricing mechanism, the economic measure. In the meantime, member states and the industry, because the proposals from all of them, they continue to talk to each other in order to get all the best aspects of these measures and develop the one that is going to be agreeable for all and that is actually going to um, help us to meet the objectives of the transition on this organization. Thank you. Um, and Baroness, we're just th thinking again, maybe even more short term, uh, end of this year, we will have COP28 in the UAE. For the UK government, what does success look like at COP28? Um, when it comes to maritime, obviously I'm not going to talk about anything else. Uh, so yes, yeah, so when we all go on holiday to Dubai, um, we, uh, I, I will be very, very much focused um, on, on the sorts of things that maritime can achieve. Um, I would very much like to see more signatories to the Clydebank Declaration. I think the, 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 that expanding that would be would be incredibly good. And I think we shouldn't be you know we shouldn't be too glum at COP28. Um, I do think that we have made great strides internationally this year, and I think it is worth taking a moment to celebrate that, but also to have conversations with some nations who had to move further than they probably initially wanted to do, to reassure them um, that we are all working together on this and that there is an opportunity, of course, for everybody to put in uh, their ideas and, and their thoughts, which, which leads really to, to what Arsenio was saying, is, you know, the thing that I'm very much focused on now and, and, and around COP28, think, the thing that we need to really think about is what does the economic model look like and what do the different economic interventions look like? Um, one of the things that you know, we all know is that there are going to be operating cost differentials. How do you deal with those? Um, what is key is the government is not going to step in and pay for the operating cost differential. It's just you know, unsustainable. And in any event, a taxpayer is also a citizen. And, in, and, and we need to think about, you know, how do we help the transition um, by mitigating that operating cost um, differential? Because I think the other thing that I would also like us to be able to focus on is where do we think technology uh, will, uh, to a certain extent in the medium term, come to our rescue um, and end up by making certain fuels uh, more ubiquitous than they are now, at which point costs will fall. So I think we need to do a lot of work around, uh, and I really appreciate the work that the Lloyd's Register has done, and I would like a copy of that report if that's okay, um, to really think about what are the different scenarios that, that are, are going to be down the track and what might they look like, because there may well be a scenario where there is you know, some short to medium term intervention that is required, but actually over time it will fall away. It will all depend on carbon pricing. We love the IMO, we love the work that happens internationally. Sometimes it can feel like it's very slow, um, but that's necessarily so because of what it is. Private sector can move much more far quickly than that, and I am aware that there are some people working on some very interesting uh, proposals, which I'm probably not allowed to share today, um, but um, as to what the private sector can do outside of government to try and group together demand for uh, certain cleaner and greener transport routes. So I think watch this space on that one. Thank you. And, and maybe finally then, Arsenio, um, clearly not every 
company is the same size as Maersk. Not every, every company um, can, um, can be that first mover or can, can absorb that financial risk or that commercial risk or even commercial opportunity. You've already talked about the cargo owners uh, demanding more. Um, so how do, we get, how do we get more incentive? Um, it, you're, I, know, I know we have to go through a certain process. I know we have to get these reports finished. But what more can we be doing internationally to encourage more first movers? Because I have to say, there's no shortage of fast followers that I've spoken to. <laughs> But there's lots of people very, very nervous, understandably, about being first and it being the wrong decision. We talked about being fuel agnostic and technology agnostic. Then everything is, is coming together. There are certain parts that, of course, are, and this is, this is a business. We, we have to remember that as well. There are economic decisions that companies will make depending on you know, where they're taking them forward. Another very good point that yeah, the minister highlighted is, you know, the perception is, is the population. And this is growing around the world. It's not just on developed countries. It's happening in developing countries. They need to actually be sustainable. Uh, the sustainable de development goals from the UN are actually reaching out a lot further than sometimes um, we, we think. So th there is the part from the governments to support um, those early movers. From our side, what I can say is want to tailor different um, projects and bring forward and start the conversations with the United Nations on where we can actually enhance the financing that can also support this, this development. Because it's, we are on the same boat here when we go to UNFCCC and we talk about what else can be done for developing countries. Now that we have a tool, now that we have the, the strategy, yes, we're celebrating it, but we need to start using it as well. And this strategy, it's something that is going to help us to unlock those opportunities. We probably need to change the way that we speak as well. And then just help others to understand that you can't just sit down and wait all the time. That this is time to also take some risks. And I know that it's easier setting down from, from me here at the top. But the reality is that we are changing. This decarbonization transition is going to take place. Some, some room for risk will have to be there. And from our side, it's whatever we can do on our projects, on sharing information, helping those early movers to share information with those who have not been able to, for whatever reason, and understand those reasons, to see what else we can do. We can then knock at the door of the government and the industry itself, and actually just continue to working together. Just the same way that we adopted a strategy together, we have the same responsibility to move together towards achieving all those goals. Thank you. Well, um, I'm sure everybody in the room wishes you uh, and the team at IMO great success uh, as you step into that role uh, in January. Um, certainly lots to do, but I think we can be proud given the uh, disrupted world that we've experienced in the last two years of just how much progress we are making and the first movers that we've seen take those brave steps. So um, thank you all. Perhaps you can join us in... Uh, Welcome, uh, thanking the Baroness and Arsenio. <laughs>